Chapter Sixteen of the White Company. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Clive Catterall. The White Company by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Chapter Sixteen. How the Yellow Cog fought the two rover galleys. The three vessels had been sweeping swiftly westwards, the cog still well to the front, although the galleys were slowly drawing in upon either quarter. To the left was a hard skyline, unbroken by a sail. The island already lay like a cloud behind them, while right in front was St. Alban's head, with Portland looming mistily in the farthest distance. Alan stood by the tiller, looking backwards, the fresh wind full in his teeth, the crisp winter air tingling on his face, and blowing his yellow curls from under his bassinet. His cheeks were flushed, and his eyes shining, for the blood of a hundred fighting Saxon ancestors was beginning to stir in his veins. "'What was that?' he asked, as a hissing, sharp-drawn voice seemed to whisper in his ear. The steersman smiled, and pointed with his foot to where a short, heavy crossbow quarrel stuck quivering in the boards. At the same instant the man stumbled forward upon his knees, and lay lifeless upon the deck, a blood-stained feather jutting out from his back. As Alan stooped to raise him, the air seemed to be alive with the sharp zip-zip of the bolts, and he could hear them pattering on the deck, like apples at a tree-shaking. "'Raise two more mantlets by the poop-lantern,' said Sir Nigel quietly. "'And another man to the tiller!' cried the master shipman. "'Keep them in play, Aylward, with ten of your men,' the knight continued, "'and let ten of Sir Oliver's bowmen do as much for the Genoese. "'I have no mind as yet to show them how much they have to fear from us.' Ten picked shots under Aylward stood in line across the broad deck, and it was a lesson to the young squires, who had seen nothing of war, to note how orderly and how cool were these old soldiers, how quick the command and how prompt the carrying out, ten moving like one. Their comrades crouched beneath the bulwarks with many a rough jest, and many a scrap of criticism or advice. "'Higher, Wat, higher! Put thy body into it, Will! Forget not the wind, Hal!' So ran the muttered chorus, while high above it rose the sharp twanging of the strings, the hiss of the shafts, and the short, "'Draw your arrow! Nick your arrow!' "'Shoot wholly together!' from the master bowman. And now both mangonels were at work from the galleys, but so covered and protected that, save at the moment of discharge, no glimpse could be caught of them. A huge brown rock from the Genoese sang over their heads, and plunged sullenly into the slope of a wave. Another from the Norman whizzed into the waist, broke the back of a horse, and crashed its way through the side of the vessel. Two others, flying together, tore a great gap in the St. Christopher upon the sail, and brushed three of Sir Oliver's men-at-arms from the forecastle. The master shipman looked at the knight with a troubled face. "'They keep their distance from us,' said he. "'Our archery is over good, and they will not close. "'What defence can we make against the stones?' "'I think I may trick them,' the knight answered cheerfully, and passed his order to the archers. Instantly five of them threw up their hands, and fell prostrate upon the deck. One had already been slain by a bolt, so that there were but four upon their feet. 
"'That should give them heart,' said Sir Nigel, eyeing the galleys which crept along on either side, with a slow, measured swing of their great oars, the water swirling and foaming under their sharp stems. "'They still hold aloof,' cried Hortain. "'Then down with two more,' shouted their leader. "'That will do.' Ma foi, but they come to our lure like chicks to the fowler. To your arms, men. The pennon behind me, and the squires round the pennon. Stand fast with the anchors in the waist, and be ready for a cast. Now, blow our trumpets, and may God's benison be with the honest men. As he spoke, a roar of voices and a roll of drums came from either galley, and the water was lashed into spray by the hurried beat of a hundred oars. Down they swooped, one on the right, one on the left the sides and shrouds black with men, and bristling with weapons. In heavy clusters they hung upon the forecastle, all ready for a spring, faces white, faces brown, faces yellow and faces black, fair Norsemen, swarthy Italians, fierce rovers from the Levant, and fiery moors from the Barbary States, of all hues and countries, and marked solely by the common stamp of a wild beast ferocity rasping up on either side with oars trailing to save them from snapping they poured in a living torrent with horrid yell and shrill whoop upon the defenceless merchantmen but wilder yet was the cry and shriller still the scream when there rose up from the shadow of those silent bulwarks the long lines of english bowmen and the arrows whizzed in a deadly sleet among the unprepared masses upon the pirate decks from the higher sides of the cog the bowmen could shoot straight down at a range which was so short as to enable a cloth-yard shaft to pierce through mail-coats, or to transfix a shield, though it were an inch thick of toughened wood. One moment Alan saw the galley's poop crowded with rushing figures, waving arms, exultant faces. The next it was a blood-smeared shambles, with bodies piled three deep upon each other, the living cowering behind the dead to shelter themselves from that sudden storm-blast of death. On either side, the seamen, whom Sir Nigel had chosen for the purpose, had cast their anchors over the side of the galleys, so that the three vessels, locked in an iron grip, lurched heavily forward upon the swell. And now set in a fell and fierce fight, one of a thousand of which no chronicler has spoken, and no poet sung. Through all the centuries, and over all those southern waters, nameless men have fought in nameless places, their sole monuments a protected coast and an unravaged countryside. Fore and aft the archers had cleared the galley's decks, but from either side the rovers had poured down into the waist, where the seamen and bowmen were pushed back, and so mingled with their foes that it was impossible for their comrades above to draw string to help them. It was a wild chaos, where axe and sword rose and fell, while Englishmen, Norman, and Italians staggered and reeled on a deck which was cumbered with bodies and slippery with blood the clang of blows, the cries of the stricken, the short, deep shout of the islanders, and the fierce whoops of the rovers rose together in a deafening tumult, while the breath of the panting men went up into the wintry air like the smoke from a furnace. The giant Tete Noire, towering above his fellows and clad from head to foot in plate of proof, led on his boarders, waving a huge mace in the air, with which he struck to the deck every man who approached him. On the other side, Spadebeard, a dwarf in height, but of great breadth of shoulder and length of arm, had cut a road almost to the mast, with threescore Genoese men-at-arms close at his heels. Between these two formidable assailants, 
the seamen were being slowly wedged more closely together, until they stood back to back under the mast, with the rovers raging upon every side of them. But help was close at hand. Sir Oliver Buttsthorn, with his men-at-arms, had swarmed down from the forecastle, while Sir Nigel, with his three squires, Black Simon, Aylward, Hordle John, and a score more, threw themselves from the poop, and hurled themselves into the thickest of the fight. Alan, as in duty bound, kept his eyes fixed ever on his lord, and pressed forward close at his heels. Often had he heard of Sir Nigel's prowess and skill with all knightly weapons, but all the tales that had reached his ears fell far short of the real quickness and coolness of the man. It was as if the devil was in him, for he sprang here and sprang there, now thrusting and now cutting, catching blows on his shield, turning them with his blade, stooping under the swing of an axe, springing over the sweep of a sword, so swift and so erratic that the man who braced himself for a blow at him might find him six paces off ere he could bring it down. Three pirates had fallen before him, and he had wounded Spadebeard in the neck, when the Norman giant sprang at him from the side with a slashing blow from his deadly mace. Sir Nigel stooped to avoid it, and at the same instant turned a thrust from the Genoese swordsman, but, his foot slipping in a pool of blood, he fell heavily to the ground. Alan sprang in front of the Norman, but his sword was shattered, and he himself beaten to the ground by a second blow from the ponderous weapon. Ere the pirate chief could repeat it, however, John's iron grip fell upon his wrist, and he found that for once he was in the hands of a stronger man than himself. Fiercely he strove to disengage his weapon, but Hordle John bent his arm slowly back, until, with a sharp crack like a breaking stave, it turned limp in his grasp, and the mace dropped from the nerveless fingers. In vain he tried to pluck it up with the other hand. Back and back still his foeman bent him, until, with a roar of pain and of fury, the giant clanged his full length upon the boards, while the glimmer of a knife before the bars of his helmet warned him that short would be his shrift if he moved. Cowed and disheartened by the loss of their leader, the Normans had given back, and were now streaming over the bulwarks onto their own galley, dropping a dozen at a time onto her deck. But the anchor still held them in its crooked claw, and Sir Oliver, with fifty men, was hard upon their heels. Now, too, the archers had room to draw their bows once more, and great stones from the yard of the cog came thundering and crashing among the flying rovers. Here and there they rushed with wild screams and curses, diving under the sail, crouching behind booms, huddling into corners like rabbits when the ferrets are upon them, as helpless and as hopeless. They were stern days, and if the honest soldier, too poor for a ransom, had no prospect of mercy upon the battlefield, what ruth was there for sea-robbers, the enemies of humankind, taken in the very deed, with proofs of their crimes still swinging upon their yard-arm? But the fight had taken a new and a strange turn upon the other side. Spadebeard and his men had given slowly back, hard-pressed by Sir Nigel, Aylward, Black Simon, and the poop-guard. Foot by foot the Italian had retreated, his armour running blood at every joint, his shield split, his crest shorn, his voice fallen away to a mere gasping and croaking. Yet he faced his foeman with dauntless courage, dashing in, springing back, sure-footed and steady-handed, with a point which seemed to menace three at once. Beaten back onto the deck of his own vessel, and closely followed by a dozen Englishmen, he disengaged himself from them, ran swiftly down the deck, sprang back into the cog once more, cut the rope which held the anchor, 
and was back in an instant among his crossbowmen. At the same time the Genoese sailors thrust with their oars against the side of the cog, and a rapidly widening rift appeared between the two vessels. "'By St. George!' cried Ford. "'We are cut off from Sir Nigel!' "'He's lost!' gasped Turlake. "'Come, let us spring for it!' The two youths jumped with all their strength to reach the departing galley. Ford's feet reached the edge of the bulwarks, and his hand, clutching a rope, he swung himself on board. Turlake fell short, crashed in among the oars, and bounded off into the sea. Alan, staggering to the side, was about to hurl himself after him, but Hordle John dragged him back by the girdle. "'You can scarce stand, lad, far less jump,' said he. "'See how the blood rips from your bassinet.' "'My place is by the flag,' cried Alan, vainly struggling to break from the other's hold. "'Bide here, man. You would need wings ere you could reach Sir Nigel's side.' The vessels were indeed so far apart now that the Genoese could use the full sweep of their oars and draw away rapidly from the cog. "'My God, but it's a noble fight!' shouted Big John, clapping his hands. "'They have cleared the poop, and they spring into the waist. "'Well struck, my lord! Well struck, Aylward! See to Black Simon how he storms among the shipmen! But this spade-beard is a gallant warrior. He rallies his men upon the forecastle. He hath slain an archer. Ah, my lord is upon him. Look to it, Alan. See to the whirl and glitter of it. By heaven, Sir Nigel is down, cried the squire. Up, roared John. It was but a feint. He bears him back. He drives him to the side. By our lady, his sword is through him. They cry for mercy. Down go the red cross, and up springs Simon with the scarlet roses. The death of the Genoese leader did indeed bring the resistance to an end. Amid a thundering of cheering from cog and from galleys, the forked pennon fluttered upon the forecastle, and the galley, sweeping round, came slowly back, as the slaves who rowed it learned the wishes of their new masters. The two knights had come aboard the cog, and the grapplings, having been thrown off, the three vessels now moved abreast. Through all the storm and rush of the fight, Alan had been aware of the voice of Goodwin Hortain, the master shipman, with his constant, "'Hail the Bolan! Fear the sheet!' And strange it was to him to see how swiftly the blood-stained sailors turned from strife to the ropes and back. Now the cog's head was turned Francewards, and the shipman walked the deck, a peaceful master mariner once more. "'There is sad scathe done to the cog, Sir Nigel,' said he. Here is a hole in the side, two ells across, the sail split through the centre, and the wood as bare as a friar's pole. In good sooth I know not what I shall say to Master Witherton when I see the itchin once more. By St. Paul, it would be a very sorry thing if we suffered you to be the worse of this day's work, said Sir Nigel. You shall take these galleys back with you, and Master Witherton may sell them. Then from the monies he shall take as much as may make good the damage, and the rest he shall keep until our homecoming, when every man shall have his share. An image of silver fifteen inches high have I vowed to the Virgin, to be placed in her chapel within the priory, for that she was pleased to allow me to come upon this spade-bed, who seemed to me, from what I have seen of him, to be a very sprightly and valiant gentleman. But how fares it with you, Edrickson? "'It is nothing, my fair lord,' said Alan who had loosened his bassinet, which was cracked across by the Norman's blow. Even as he spoke, however, his head swirled round, and he fell to the deck with the blood gushing from his nose and mouth. 
"'You will come to anon,' said the knight, stooping over him and passing his fingers through his hair. "'I have lost one very valiant and gentle squire this day. I can ill afford to lose another. "'How many men have fallen?' "'I have pricked off the tally,' said Aylward, who had come aboard with his lord. "'There are seven of the Winchester men, eleven seamen, your squire, young Master Turlake, and nine archers.' "'And of the others?' "'They are all dead.' Uh, save only the Norman knight who stands behind you. What would you that we should do with him? He must hang on his own yard, said Sir Nigel. It was my vow, and must be done. The pirate leader had stood by the bulwarks, a cord round his arms, and two stout archers on either side. At Sir Nigel's words he started violently, and his swarthy features blanched to a livid grey. Ow, Sir Knight! he cried in broken English. Que dites-vous? De hang? Le mort du chien de hang. It is my vow, said Sir Nigel shortly. From what I hear, you thought little enough of hanging others. Paison, basse roturier, cried the other. It is their fitting death. Mais le seigneur d'Andely, avec le sang des rois de Saint-Vin, c'est incroyable. Sir Nigel turned upon his heel, while two seamen cast a noose over the pirate's neck. At the touch of the cord he snapped the bonds which bound him, dashed one of the archers to the deck, and, seizing the other round the waist, sprang with him into the sea. "'By my hilt he is gone!' cried Aylward, rushing to the side. "'They have sunk together like a stone!' "'I am right glad of it,' answered Sir Nigel. "'For though it was against my vow to loose him, I deem that he has carried himself like a very gentle and debonair cavalier.' End of chapter 16